uh, as we preach his word together. But as you open your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, uh, do you remember the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty? If it goes like this, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. No matter what the king's horses could do, no matter what they did, they could not fix the situation. Humpty Dumpty fell off, and and if you remember the picture, he is portrayed as an egg, and he climbed up onto a wall. I don't know why he did that, because he's an egg. No, that's the major question, is why in the world did Humpty Dumpty, as an egg, climb up to a high space? But he fell And no matter what happened, there was nothing that anybody could do to put all the pieces together again. Kind of like if you have that favorite mug of yours and it falls out of the the cupboard and onto the ground and it shatters. Maybe it breaks into a couple of pieces and you, you get all the pieces together and you get them all together and you go find your super glue uh, stick and you start sticking them together and you get them all together and then you quickly realize that you don't have all the pieces. Sometimes when something breaks, it's, it's broken. You can't put it back together no matter how hard you try. It's never going to be the same as it once was. It's, it's not going to be whole. It's like the mug, just like Humpty Dumpty. But you find that no matter how hard you try, it's still broken. It's still not whole. And in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, we see Jesus interacting with a man on the Sabbath. This is just after Jesus has healed the official son. If you remember way back when we were talking about John chapter 4 and Jesus heals the official son just by a word and the man trusts Jesus and he goes home. But now we're continuing on as Jesus is, uh, how John continuously reveals more and more of who our Lord and Savior is. In John chapter 5 verses 1 to 18, we see him come face to face with a man who is nursing a vain hope and an unbiblical superstition. So if you have your Bibles with you, follow along with me as we read the word of the Lord together. After this... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in, in Jerusalem by the sheep's gate, uh, sheep's gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there uh, a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the the man said to me, take up your bed and and walk. And they asked him, who is this man? And who, who said to you, take up your bed and walk? 
Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, and Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the chance we had to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray above all that you have been glorified and that you will be glorified as we continue to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the ability we have to even do this. And Lord, we pray for all the churches here in in London that uh, seek to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And specifically, we think of Stony Creek. And as uh, Pastor Mark preaches your word, Lord, I pray that you would give him and uh, his fellow elders the wisdom that they need to disciple and to shepherd the flock that you have entrusted to them. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them as they seek to be faithful disciples and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would just continue to glorify you here at Knollwood as we seek to be faithful, as we praise you for 80 years of your faithfulness. God, when we look at your faithfulness, we don't try to ignore the hardships because they elevate your faithfulness. But Lord, we praise you in this. And as we continue to seek to be faithful disciples ourselves, Lord, we do pray that we would indeed see fruit from those labors. But God, I pray that you are glorified. God, I want to speak of you, and I praise you and praise your name. And God, I, don't, I can't do this on my own. So Lord, by your spirit, give me the strength that is needed to preach this sermon with the appropriate power to bring glory to your name and joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. We see here Jesus who comes to rescue the lost to strengthen those who are weak, and to lift up those who are spiritually lame and powerless so that they can walk in spiritual life. That is what we see in these few verses here. And in the first few verses, in in verses 1 to 9, we see Jesus meets a man with vain hope. It is a vain hope. As we see right in verse 1, after this, Jesus had just healed the official son back in chapter 4, the official son who trusted Jesus to simply speak and heal his child. As we continue on, we see this architecture that is there as, as John begins to try and paint a picture for us so we can close our eyes and picture this pool with these five colonnades around them and all of the people that are there with them just waiting for this water to kind of bubble up so that they can get in there and get healed. The Bible says, the text says, a multitude, lots of people. They were weak, as that word invalid actually means. It usually means weak in the Greek. Different translations might use sick or helpless or infirm or powerless or feeble. 
So you get the picture of what John is trying to give us right now. As Jesus walks up to this man, he singles out this single man in the multitude of people who are powerless and sick and unhealthy. And we see the humanity that has been broken and weak. Just as we see all these people at the pool, we also too are too, we have to ask, we see ourselves being painted here ourselves of, of being physically helpless and infirm, but we're not necessarily physically helpless, but we are definitely, as John is painting for us, as we will see, spiritually broken and helpless. See, if you're outside of Jesus' living, life-giving ministry, you are spiritually helpless. But what does it mean to be spiritually helpless? What does that look like? When we speak of spiritual inability, we're not talking about how back in creation God created so that we have this inability to obey. God created, created all things good, but it is because of the sin that we are no longer able to do what we were created to do. Our spiritual powerlessness is, is shown in two ways. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And because of their sin, everybody after them was affected by sin. It permeated. It's in our DNA. It kept getting passed on and passed on. We call this original sin. As a result of that corruption, both men and women are sinful. We are in a fallen state, unable to believe. And that's what John is painting for us today. Just as the people at the pool were physically powerless, we are spiritually powerless. And not just powerless in a little bit so that you can maybe help yourself in some sort of little way, but the Bible talks about how we are totally corrupt. Every part. The Bible teaches that sin has corrupted us completely and comprehensively, totally. The Bible talks about how there is no part of us that is not fatally corrupted by sin. And this is the other picture, this is the other part of the picture that John is painting for us as we close our eyes and and dwell upon the scene that Jesus comes here. We are broken. We aren't whole. Sin has broken us like the mug. We aren't whole anymore. And no matter how much we try to fix ourselves, we are broken. We are powerless. No matter how hard we try, how much we hope we have in ourselves what it takes to get ourselves out of this muck, out of this deep depression, we can't put it all back together again. We're broken. At least by human efforts. How often do we try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, as they say? Picture with me this man. 38 years of sitting there or lying there on a mat just waiting for something that actually has no biblical basis to happen. We call that a vain hope. It's not the hope that those who are in Christ have. A certain hope. This is a hope like let's hope that the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup anytime soon. How many things do we believe that aren't founded in the Bible and we stick our hope in that? 
How often do we try to put ourselves back together? So just like the multitude of people at this pool had their, and their physical infirmities affected them completely, the Bible talks about how our spiritual state is completely from top to bottom. And what else is included in this? Like I said, the Bible talks about our hands, as Isaiah 1 verse 15 says, are full of blood. Our feet, which run to evil, as Proverbs 1.16 says. Or our tongue, which is used to deceive, as Romans 3 says. Or our eyes, which are haughty, like Proverbs 21. Our ears, which are closed and dull to the hearing, uh, hearing when God is speaking, like Isaiah 6. Our minds, which are futile and darkened in understanding, as Ephesians 4 says, oh, how about our hearts? Our hearts are good, right? People have good hearts. Especially our hearts are corrupt. Jeremiah exclaims, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperate, sick. You, who can understand it? Sin just doesn't affect a part of us, but all of us. We aren't whole, we are broken. But pastor, you may come and say, some people do bad things, but ultimately they have a good heart, you might tell me. Well, that's not what the Bible says. John is painting a picture for you and me. Our chief problem is that that the opposite is true. We don't have good hearts. If original sin is the why of our spiritual condition, total depravity is that what that is shown in this pool. You and I, we are blind and lame and paralyzed. And this is a man who's putting his vain hope in becoming whole once again in something that won't make him whole again. See, his biggest issue isn't his ability to walk again. We can look at this and say, that's his issue. But his state before a holy God, he isn't whole. The scene has been set, and we have now been introduced to the characters that are there, the problem and the solution. And Jesus and the man who has been there for 38 years in his weakness, we are introduced to a man who is nursing a vain hope in an unbiblical superstition. And Jesus uses it to show us, you and me and him, his need. This is a man who is not whole. As we see in verses 6 to 9, Jesus begins to heal him. He sought him out of the many people that were there at this encounter. And he asks them this question in verse 6. Do you want to be healed? You've got to be like, Jesus, that's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? Obviously. The question could be a way for Jesus to ask if the desire for healing is why the man is lying there beside the pool. It could also be a prompt for the man to consider whether lying there at that pool is actually going to get him to be healed. Jesus is asking the question to point to the deeper issue of this man. I like how the King James actually translates this. It says, Wilt thou be made whole? It says in the text in verse 6. I want you to think about this. This man has a misplaced hope. He actually really deserves our pity. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about God setting up pools in Jerusalem so that people could be healed in this way. The Bible doesn't talk about an angel stirring up the waters and, and, and so that the first person who gets there into the pool would, be, would get better. Think about what that actually implies if that is true. Angel comes down, stirs the water. That person has to get into that water and they have to get there faster than everybody else. That is not the character of God. God steps down from his throne and he pays the price for us. It's called grace. There's no act on my part in order to receive that. I don't have to hustle hard enough. I don't have to crawl on the ground fast enough. God saves me. Just like Jesus comes and sought this man out, he seeks this man out, so God has sought me out. And Jesus asks this question, if he wants to be made whole again, He's been sitting there for 38 years just waiting his vain hopes based on ignorant superstition. And when Jesus gently prods his vain hope, he is so immersed in that vain hope that his only response to Jesus is his excuse of why he's not healed yet. Uh, Everyone keeps beating me to the punch. That's why. As he says in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. The answer to what will make me whole again is in that pool of water, he is saying. This man is like a child that you see as you're walking along the sidewalk. You see a child, he's crouched over a mud pile. Maybe he's, he's crying, and in his hand, he's got one of those matchbox cars. You know, they're made out of wood. And in the other hand, he has a washcloth, and he keeps dipping the washcloth in the mud and fiercely scrubs the car. Wouldn't you, at least in your mind, might ask, Are you trying to clean that car? The question is both an inquiry and an invitation. What you're asking him to do is to examine his actions and evaluate whether they will be effective or not. The question shows there are better ways to clean the toys. And that is what Jesus is asking here in verse 6. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Jesus is not impressed with the method of waiting by the pool. He's seeking to be the, this man is seeking to be the first into the water when it ripples. He is pointing to the man's brokenness. As he's, verse 7, he still doesn't understand Jesus. He thinks Jesus may be, may get him, may help him get into the pool. But Jesus is talking about something so much more deeper. Jesus is trying to address his real state. What the legend surrounding this water couldn't give this man, Jesus gives him in a single sentence that gives him the strength and mobility in verse 8. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. The man didn't need to be first to the water. 
to be healed. He needed the one who spoke the world into existence to say the word and make it so. He didn't need a vain hope. He needed Jesus. The further we move into the, into the gospel, <clears throat> sorry, the further we move into John's gospel, the wider he draws open the curtains on Jesus' identity and his mission. He circle, his miracles grow bigger and his words grow bolder and all revealing Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God. God the Son, the second person in the Trinity. This is who he is. And even in Isaiah 35, we see how Isaiah 35 prophesied that the coming Messiah would mean the healing of, of how the lame will leap and the deaf will hear and the desert sands will become a pool of refreshing water. Jesus is trying to point to this man of his need of a Savior and what he has done. Not to put our hope in something that is vain, but to put our hope in something that is sure. So what are you putting your hope in today? Maybe you're putting your hope in a needle because that's what's going to make your life normal. But what if it doesn't? Maybe you're putting your hope in your circumstances changing. But what if they don't? Maybe you're like the kid in the, in dipping his cloth in the mud trying to clean up your life. The man didn't need some false tale about angels doing a trick with water. He needed Jesus to say a word that would cleanse him and make him whole again. That is all it took. And Jesus came and made him whole. Jesus works to make him a new to make him new again are you putting your hope in the one who is working to make all things new a hope that goes beyond all of our circumstances we always seem to put our hope in something that is vain but i want to put my hope in something that is still hope regardless of my circumstances my circumstances will always change, but my Lord and Savior will never. In verses 9, the end of 9 to verse 18, near the end, Jesus is making all things new. How should, let me ask you this question, how should people respond when they see God perform a surprising and generous work of joyful restoration? How do you think someone should respond? Should not our hearts soar to the highest of heavens to see God's love in action? Or should the authorities start thinking about rules or policies or commandments and regulations? In verse 9, at once the man was healed. Jesus' power is shown as simply through a word that the man is healed. But it's on the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was a day that God has set apart that was established all the way at the beginning of creation for us to rest. It's like a built-in holiday every week to rest. 
But Jesus comes along and he begins to heal it. But Jeremiah, in verse, Jeremiah 17, 21, he actually talks about how uh, we, we, we put too much on the Sabbath. As he says in Jeremiah 17, 21, Thus says the Lord, he says, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your house on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I command your fathers. So why did they respond to the man's healing in this way? Why did they respond with such a harsh attitude? Instead of one of joy and, and, and uh, hearts that soared that this man for 38 years who couldn't walk was suddenly able to walk, why in the world were they not happy about that? Jewish tradition interpreted the Sabbath prohibition against work to forbid carrying almost all burdens. Literally all burdens. But this went well beyond what the Old, Old Testament forbid. It's funny, right? Like, I bet there was a, some sort of clause in the culture for a mother carrying their child. <laughs> Their concern for law-keeping, which, don't get me wrong, to be obedient is not legalism. The definition of legalism is me implying or you implying that you need to do something in order to be saved or to grow in, in spiritual life. It's not legalism to, to be obedient. But their concern for law-keeping which was good, it had overcome their concern for this poor, sick man. These people come to this man to quote scripture and ask questions later. The greatest commandment in the Bible, and Jesus says this himself, is to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might, with all your mind. And the second is to do what? To love your neighbor, to love people. These Jews are suspicious of Jesus. For the Jew, it wasn't about loving God and loving their neighbor, but strict obedience to the letter of the law because that was what was going to win them favor before God. Their actions weren't coming out of an, a flowing of what God had done for them, but a, a way of seeking to win favor for God. That's what legalism is. They, the, the love that they had for the conformity to the law overwent, overrode everything, everybody, every regular people and all their situation. This poor man was afflicted for 38 years, but they were worried merely because he had taken up his bed and was walking. The law for them was the pool for this man. They thought the law was what made them whole again. Not seeing that the law shows them of their need of a Messiah. Romans 3.20 talks about this. For by works of the law, no man, sorry, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes, what? The knowledge of sin. So in verse 11, the man who healed me, as he says, or the man who made me whole, as that man says, this man made me whole again. I was broken, but he made me whole Jesus didn't just heal this man, but he made him healthy. He made him whole again. And Jesus made his way back to him as we see later on. 
But in verse 12, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the Jews, they're asking, who is this man? They didn't even ask about the man who healed him, but the man who told this man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. Here's a guy who they probably knew or saw or something for 38 years was lying on a mat. My first question would be like, wait, what happened? Their first question is, is why are you walking? Well, I guess that's the right question, but the wrong tone. In verse 14, we see that there's now a new time and a new place as the scene begins to shift a little bit more. And as we, need to, as we look at the new time and, and place, because the man is now in the temple. He's now in the temple with the people of God and the presence of God because the temple was a symbol of the presence of God. But let me bring some context into this. Because in Leviticus 21, we see that under the old covenant, those with physical deformities could not even serve as priests. And those with certain conditions had to remain outside of the camp. Any kind of physical imperfection was a result of the fall. That was what the law clearly stated. God would not tolerate sin in his presence. But now this man who had been physically debilitated for 38 years could enter into the presence of God in the temple. He had been restored. He had been made whole again by Jesus. He entered God's presence to worship at the temple as we see in verse 14. But Jesus comes to him and he interacts with him again in the temple and he says to him, See, you are well. This is exciting. Explanation point there. But then he gives him this charge. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus found him in the temple and exclaimed to him this thing. See, context is important. So we really get why it's such a big deal that Jesus finds him in the temple. As I said, his physical deformities would have kept him out of the presence of God. But now God had made him new again. Sin is a cause for exclusion from God's presence. And those who continue in unrepentant sin are eternally separated from God. And that is why Jesus comes and he warns this man, you are well, praise God, this is awesome. Don't continue to sin anymore. Because ultimately the heart of the issue is not that he can walk again, but that he would be separated eternally from God. If the man had not responded to God's kindness with repentance and grateful obedience, like we see in Romans 2, verse 4, the mercy he had received would have compounded his guilt, as Hebrews 6 says. So Jesus warns him, well, don't sin anymore. Rest in what I have done for me. So Jesus comes along as he, he, he interacts with, with them and, and the Jews are still upset about what is happening. And verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And we don't know necessarily why, what are the motives there. I'm not going to paint a picture of something that we don't know. But he goes and he tells the religious leaders about what he had heard. And in verse 16, and this is why, they say, Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was working on the Sabbath. So what is going on here? As we see in the New Testament, Jesus in Luke calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. 
So is he disobeying the Sabbath or is he keeping the Sabbath? What is going on here? And we have to have an understanding of what the Sabbath is and what the point of the Sabbath is. The point of the Sabbath was so that we would have rest from our work so that we can spend time with God and with his people. See, even though Jesus comes, Jesus points out that while God is rested from creation, his work of redemption has gone on in the world. It is worldly work that we are to stop in a sense of Sabbath, not the work of Christ's kingdom. The job of us going to, make, to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ is an ongoing job. We don't stop doing that on a Sunday. And just as Jesus talks about this in Matthew 12, the work of mercy and basic provision is allowed. It's not a sin to heal, provide food and table fellowship and encourage the downcast or perform other acts of mercy on the Lord's day. Imagine that. You're late for church one day and somebody stops you on the street and asks you for some help. And you say in your response, I'm late for church. I got to get to church. Sorry, man. Someone else is going to have to help you. And you leave. What does that communicate to that person? Why in the world would that be a sin to help people when doing those things we tell others about Jesus and his salvation? On the Lord's day, we rest from our worldly labors, but God continues in his work of salvation through us and for his glory. And that's what's happening here. Jesus was continuing the work of his father as he continues to redeem people for himself. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was actually fulfilling the Sabbath. Jesus gives a command to this man and he obeys it. He gets up and he walks. You can't be resting in Christ if you aren't obeying him either. The fact that Jesus healed the lame man on the Sabbath is important and we need to understand this. You need to pay attention to what is happening. What do we learn about who Jesus is? We see that Jesus has authority over Israel's Sabbath for he is the Lord of the Sabbath as Luke 6 says. The Jerusalem temple had also become a place of commercial business. The temple had been more concerned with producing an economy rather than doing the work of the kingdom. But God meant this place to be, the temple, to be a house of mercy. That is literally what the word Bethsaida means, house of mercy. Only through Jesus can we find God's mercy and grace and enter into true Sabbath rest, though, as Hebrews 4 says. And what is true Sabbath rest? It is stopping our futile efforts to save ourselves, to get into a pool of water, or to follow the law so close that we can be saved. It's about trusting Jesus and his perfect work that he has done on our behalf. We see this about who Jesus is as he cares about who the whole being. Not only does he heal the legs of this man, but he also redeems his heart and he makes him whole again. What does this mean for you and me? As, as Christians, if you're a Christian, your entire life is a life of growing in grace. 
Though we are perfectly forgiven, we await the perfection of eternity with Christ. And yet, as those swept up into and towards the latter-day kingdom of God, we are called to sin no more, to live out our new and radical transformed lives, our transformed identity. Our job is to go and proclaim to broken vessels the one who can make them whole again, who can make them new again. That even though we are sinful and broken, we can be made right and whole before a holy God. So what do we do with this? Why does John say that Jesus healed on the Sabbath? Because his Father is still working. So Jesus is working too. And he and the Father are one. In this narrative, we see our inabilities to save ourselves, but we see Christ who has the power of salvation and the power to give new life. Jesus is God who alone continues to make things new. This man had never been able to do what he wanted to do until now. He had never risen and taken up his mat until the power of Christ gave him that strength. Bring it to Jesus to wash, bring it to Jesus to be washed and clean in his blood. Is there some tragedy from your past that someone somehow cripples you? Look at what Jesus did for this man who had been lame for 38 years. Ask him to heal what is broken in you with his tender love and to bind up with mercy those wounds that God intends for you to still bear. Bring the dark places of your heart into the light of his grace. Let his word be a source not merely of religious information but of spiritual life for your damaged souls. The Jesus who asked this man by the pool, do you want to be healed, will not turn you away from his grace. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not that bad. You know, there's not really a lot wrong with me right now. In fact, perhaps people consider you to be one of those who are strong and vibrant. But instead of moving forward, you know that you are spiritually flat on your back. Perhaps it is the lack of usefulness. You know that you should study your Bible. You know that you should pray. You know that you should witness. You know that you should serve. You know that you should sacrificially give of your money. But you do not live the useful life that you are called to. In this spiritually sick world, you are just lying by the pool. Or maybe... It is a failure to relate to others as God calls you to. Maybe you're a husband, but you don't love your wife as you are called to. Maybe you're a wife, but you you don't submit or respect your husband as you are called to. Maybe you're a child, and you don't obey your parents (laughs) and show love to your brothers and sisters like you should. These are the truly important matters of our lives, yet too many of us simply don't live as God calls us to live. And because of that, we don't enjoy the peace and joy and love that we might easily possess. And God doesn't have the glory in our lives. See, for us, as disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ, our captain commands us, get up and walk. 
The time of your spiritual feebleness should end immediately, and you should begin boldly living for Christ starting right now, right here, even in the midst of a pandemic. I'm not saying that Christians become immediately perfect people or sinless. The Bible teaches directly to that point that we will continue to struggle with our sin. You can look at 1 John 1 for that. But because of Christ's power at work in us, we are able to turn from sin. If you are not living as a Christian should, it is not because Jesus lacks the power, but because you are not responding to his word in faith. Believe in the word of Christ. Get up and walk. The Christian testimony of all those who seek to follow God's word in obedient faith, even in their weakness, even in their sin, is always the testimony that Paul gives in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why should you not get up and start walking with Christ? Begin right now. So what do we see here? Jesus' father is still working. So Jesus is working too. He and the Father are one. Jesus is God who alone continues to make all things new. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for the chance we have to see who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be a people that trust you, that we put our hope in you, And as we put our hope in you, Lord, that that would send us out to be who we are called to be, to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we continue to worship you, uh, as we leave throughout this week, I pray that we would be bright, shining lights for you. And amen. 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 Uh, thank you, Pastor Nate, for bringing God's word to us this morning as you remind us that Jesus is the one true hope that we have and that he heals our biggest problem in this life, which is our sin. Uh, let us respond uh, in, in worship and song. Let us sing together.